So the Buddha, in his awakening, came to three basic understandings, elemental understandings. Uh, these weren't understandings that he came to through cogitating uh, experience, thinking about things, uh, trying to manufacture some kind of system or way of belief. Uh, these are, were understandings that he came from uh, looking at his own experience and understanding that experience in the heart. So these are understandings that he came to in the heart. Uh, and we're asked to develop these understandings as well, not intellectually, but in the heart. But in the heart. So three basic elemental uh, aspects of understanding that he came to in his awakening. The first one is that we are the consequence of our actions, we're the results of our actions. Our actions determine what our lives are. Our actions determine our happiness or lack thereof. The second understanding that he came to was that if our actions are skillful, informed by loving kindness and compassion, we'll know true happiness in this life. If our actions are unskillful, we'll know suffering. If our actions are unskillful, informed by desire and aversion, we'll know suffering in this life. So these two understandings, uh, you know, which really comprise the law of karma, are, uh, needless to say, profoundly important for us to begin to understand. Uh, we have to have some faith in the Buddha's awakening. That faith in the Buddha's awakening uh, leads us to test out these understandings on our own and see for ourselves, and ultimately develop these understandings in our own heart. We could start with these understandings that our uh, actions determine our happiness and that if our actions are skillful coming from the heart, we'll know happiness. So we can start with that and say, this is great, I'm going to take skillful action, right? I'm going to take skillful action, which is, of course, what we are asked to do and what we seek to do. The problem is that's not always so easy for us to do, and this is what the Buddha understood that we may want to take skillful action, and sometimes we may be able to, but oftentimes we're not, oftentimes we're not able to. Uh, and this, of course, leads to the third understanding, which is that our hearts are blocked. As much as we'd like to be able to take action that comes from compassion and loving kindness, we're not able to do that because we're blocked from the heart. He called this way that the heart is blocked, as we've spoken to over these past days, Dukkha. Dukkha. The heart is blocked. Uh, and the reason, and this is the, again, part of this understanding, which of course comprises the noble truths, the four noble truths. The reason the heart is blocked is because we're holding on to aversion and desire. It's not because of aversion and desire, it's because we're holding on. So, you know, what's implied there, of course, it's something that we're doing. It's something that we're doing. This is why the heart is blocked. 
and what he understood was that if we stop doing what we're doing, we'll be able to know freedom from dukkha, we'll be able to remove the blockages from the heart and, uh, and know true happiness if we stop holding on, if we abandon holding on. And what he realized was that the path that would enable us to do these things is the path of concentration, specifically the cultivation of jhana, enables us to abandon uh, holding on. When he gave his first sermon, uh, he talked about the middle path. We've talked about the middle path, uh, setting the wheel of the Dharma in motion. He said, develop the middle path, the path of skillful pleasure, and practice in accord with the Four Noble Truths. And the way that he offered that teaching was, is just that, as a practice. He laid out uh, the Four Noble Truths in the form of tasks, duties that we're asked to perform, tasks that we attend to in our efforts to free the heart from dukkha. The first task is to comprehend dukkha and holding on. The second task is to abandon holding on, clinging. The third task is to realize the absence of holding on, to realize the cessation of dukkha. And the fourth task is to develop the path, develop the path of concentration. So these tasks may seem quite daunting. They may seem quite daunting to us. They may seem difficult to understand. Uh, they may seem beyond our ability to accomplish. I mean, they do, right? I mean, it's like comprehend suffering, abandon clinging, abandon holding on, abandon holding on to aversion and desire. You, know, you don't understand. You don't understand. I've been holding on all my life, and I don't even know if I want to or if I can. Now, these tasks may seem beyond our ability to accomplish, or they may seem uh, perhaps within the scope of our ability to accomplish, accomplish, but that they would require an inordinate amount of effort, the kind of effort that in this lifetime, given the various responsibilities that we have in this world, you know, there's no way possible that I'm going to be able to accomplish these tasks, attend to these tasks. So these kinds of thoughts, wow, these, this, these tasks seem beyond my ability. These tasks seem to require the kind of effort that there's no way that I'm going to be able to put into them because I've got a lot of other important stuff to do. You've got to realize, uh, you know, these, these kinds of perceptions that we may have about these tasks, you know, we can put uh, into the category of doubt, right? The category of doubt, you know. Doubt came to the Buddha as Mara. It's like, why are you bothering with all this stuff? You had a good life, you know? You're gonna spend all your time trying to uh, awaken? You know, why don't you just go back to your householder life? Why don't you enjoy the happiness of the world that you had? It's kind of, I mean, it's just the way that we tend to think, right? 
as long as we subscribe to this kind of doubt, uh, it's difficult to move forward. I mean, the Buddha said it's crippling, that kind of doubt. If you subscribe to it, I mean, the doubt will be there. The question is, are you going to subscribe to it? So what we're asked to do, of course, is see doubt. See doubt in terms of uh, the way that we perceive our capacity to attend to the tasks, the tasks that the Buddha lays out for us. And of course, we're asked to see it in real time. And that, in many ways, is the challenge, because doubt can be very subtle, right? It can be very subtle. I mean, Mara's strength is in that Mara is very subtle. Mara puts on disguises, and we don't realize it's Mara, and we buy into the doubt. So we have to see doubt for what it is. We have to see Mara for what it is and not be deluded. Doubt is a, 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 a function of delusion, which basically means is that when we go into those kinds of doubt, we don't realize that it's doubt. We think it's some kind of inalienable truth. So see doubt as doubt, see doubt as Mara. It's kind of like, you know, as many of you know, I was a salesman, you know, for many years, more than 20 years I was a salesman. You know, I sold textbooks. It's like one step up from, you know, selling uh, snake oil and exotic medicinals out of the, out of the back of a horse-drawn wagon, you know. <laughs> Two steps up from selling stocks and bonds. <laughs> so, you know, I was a salesman. And the thing is, you know, when you're a salesman, when you've been a salesman, it's really, really, really hard for another salesman to sell you anything. It's like, I know, I, I know exactly what you're doing. You know? Even the best salesman, I can see right through what they're doing. Because I know they're just trying to sell me something. Right? And that's, you know, that's what the kind of perception, perceptive ability you want to have with Mara. It's Mara. See that it's Mara. Don't subscribe to what Mara is offering you. Don't subscribe to doubt. This probably doesn't happen much anymore, but you know how I used to get in the mail, Sub subscribe to this magazine, subscribe. To, you know, you're going to get a lot of subscriptions to doubt. Just don't subscribe. You don't, you know, it's like you wouldn't get those subscriptions. You're going to get home and garden, and I'm going to get the fishing rod and tackle. And, you know, it's like, no, you know, don't subscribe. I'll tell a little story about my, my dear, 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 dear friend, Harry. Uh, I don't think anybody here... Well, you may know Harry, I don't know. Uh, not the Harry who often comes on these retreats. Uh, this is a, a, a very, very dear friend. Uh, uh, Harry is probably my dearest friend in my adult life, the person that I was closest to. Uh, Harry was, uh, you know, he's what we call a mensch, you know, a mensch. Or the term that Harry used to like to use when he would describe somebody that you know he really liked, he said he's Hamish, you know, of the earth, a down-to-earth guy. You know, he's a guy from Queens, you know, a guy from Queens. You know. uh, and Harry was a little bit younger than me, older than me, and uh, was a real child of the '60s. You know, and like a lot, lot of ch children of the '60s, he took a few too many drugs. You know, uh, and. You know, 
drank a few too many bottles of wine and I was more of a child of the 70s but the same thing and you know we kind of met each other on the path of uh, you know living a different kind of life a sober life and uh, you know we shared that path which was a spiritual path for many many years we were very close and uh, you know we, we shared this 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 process of uh, changing our lives the Dharma was an important part of that for me it wasn't for him uh, although we would talk a lot about my practice and he, he always had plenty to say about it and then when I started the different groups I started you know we would talk about that and he would give me advice and things like that but uh, we had many many deep discussions you know sitting in usually sitting in his car you know out in front of my apartment in Queens you know we'd sit in his car for hours you know and we would be you know you know and, and, and as he would say you know sometimes it was just you know run-of-the-mill two guys from Queens bullshitting but a lot of times we were talking about the affairs of the heart and our spiritual lives and how we wanted to change and so on and so forth so one day, Harry and I were in a group with some people that we knew. This is probably 30 years ago, maybe longer. And uh, there was this woman there that we knew. Her name was Kathleen. She was a little younger than us. And uh, she was telling a story about what her last couple of weeks in her life were like. And she said, you know, I was just, one day I just felt like I was feeling really stagnant and bored. And you know, I just said, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go to Europe, I'm going to go to Italy, I'm going to go to Rome. And the next day, I, I, you know, I just I got a ticket and I went down to the airport, you know, just on the spur of the moment, and I got on a plane and I went to Italy. And I stayed for two weeks and I just got back. You know? uh, and, you know, later on, Harry and I went back, you know, left that gathering and we went back, to, he drove me back home, and as usual, we sat in his car in front of my apartment and we were just like you know we just were talking about what Kathleen had talked about and what she had did and done and we were just like in such awe such awe of, of, of what she was able to do just on the spur of the moment you know, you know we were two guys from Queens I didn't even have a passport you know I, I know he didn't have one you know and it was like I, we, I can't believe what she did I could never do that you know, we both were just like saying, I could never do that. I could never do that. Go to Italy. Just get on a plane and go to Italy. You know, lo and behold, you know, how many years later, but I ended up living in Europe. You know, I ended up living in Europe. I mean, it, as most people know, I didn't, ever, didn't even get the passport until I was nearly 50. You know, I ended up living in Berlin. And, you know, I like that story because uh, it really speaks to the way that we have, tend to have a limited view of ourselves and what we're capable of doing, you know? You know, I thought there was no way I could ever do, get on a plane and go to Europe. That was completely outside of my ability. So there's a lot of things that we think that we can't do. That doesn't mean we can't do them. It doesn't mean that we can't do them. One of the things that Christina Feldman used to talk about, and she really taught me, she would say, don't believe the thoughts that you have about yourself. 
don't believe the thoughts that you have about yourself. You know, when it comes to the Buddha's teaching on the Four Noble Truths, we tend, I think, I know that I do, uh, I think it's changing, and we all have to want. We all have to change our views in terms of the way that we think about ourselves. We tend to have a very limited view of our potential to let go, to not hold on. We tend to have a limited view of our ability to be free from dukkha. So start to see this, right? You know, this view like that I can't hold on. You know that letting go is impossible for me. Start to see that perception that you may have and start to consider another possibility. Start to consider another possibility. Start to change the way that you think about dukkha, about what's blocking the heart, about what the the way that you hold on. You know, what we're asked to do as Dharma students is to begin to consider the possibility of letting go. I mean, that, to some extent, is having faith in the Buddha's awakening. Maybe I can do this. I'm a human being, too. We learn to start to consider the possibility of letting go, of not holding on. So I've talked a lot on this retreat already about bringing awareness to the ways that we're holding on. The other night I talked about the acronym ABC, bring awareness to your aversion and desire, in its blatant forms, but importantly, in its subtle forms. I can't, I don't want to meditate. I can't meditate. My meditation isn't going well, or if it's desire, uh, you know, I've got to be the best yogi, whatever it is. Uh, We've talked a lot about bringing awareness to the ways that you hold on to aversion and desire. Uh, That acronym ABC, awareness, breath, compassion. I want to talk a little bit more tonight about this quality of awareness and practicing awareness. The retreat's a good, you know, and and, and, I'm really spending time on this on retreat because retreat is a really good opportunity. It's a very precious opportunity uh, to get to know awareness, to get to know this quality of awareness. You know, a few people have said, in, in, in the interviews when we've talked about being aware of their experience and people have shared about you know, the struggles within these last four days uh, in doing that or the times that they've been able to do that. Uh, people have shared that you know, once I go home you know, and, and, you know, and I'm in my life with everything that's going on, then it's really hard to do that. You know? and, and it is, so we need to practice, right? The more practice we get in doing it, the more we're able to bring it into our lives. So the retreat is a good opportunity to practice uh, this skill of awareness, to get to know this quality of awareness, to develop a a familiarity with it. Because kind of getting to know these qualities that we're asked and these skills that we're asked to develop this is a good place to do that. You know, I've talked about this earlier in some of the talks, but you know, retreats a really good opportunity to learn certain skills and learn about certain qualities. Uh, you know, that you don't have the time and opportunity necessarily to learn, unfortunately, uh, 
in you know the busyness of your life. You've got you know got time. I mean, this is, there's not much else to do here. You know, so get to know this quality of awareness. Get to know this capacity that you have to be aware, to bring awareness to the ways that you're holding on. Because really, in terms of working with the Four Noble Truths, this, in many ways, you know, from my experience, is going to be the most valuable way of attending to the duties of the Four Noble Truths, just to bring a simple awareness to your holding on. to the different forms of aversion and desire. So get to know this capacity that you have to bring awareness to your holding on. Get to know how to use this capacity. You know, Ajahn Lee says, uh, we establish concentration in the sitting, we maintain it, and then we put it to good use. And this is what we mean in large part by putting it to good use, putting to good use our concentration. You know, we've developed, that's the fourth noble truth, right? We're developing concentration, put it to good use by being, bringing awareness to the ways that you're holding on when you're holding on. Awareness, breath, and compassion, a simple practice. So when engaging in some kind of a mental construct when holding on, if it's dissatisfaction about the meditation or worrying about the interview, uh, when engaging with some kind of mental construct, when holding on, when the heart is blocked, when there's dukkha, right? When you're holding on, when you're engaging in that mental construct, the heart is blocked, there's dukkha. Sometimes it's subtle, it's often more subtle, but you know it. The body contracts, the body's tight, you know, the body is like your uh, antenna that picks up dukkha. You know, there's dukkha. My heart is blocked off. I'm holding on. What am I holding on to? Oh, I'm worrying about the interview. Oh, I've got aversion to, to, to my job. Oh, there's disappointment with my sitting. There's some kind of dissatisfaction with my practice. Bring awareness to that holding on. Bring awareness to the way that you're holding on to the dissatisfaction or the worry or the desire or the aversion. And it might be something very simple, very subtle, right? Could be something very subtle. You know, the little dissatisfactions and disappointments that we experience during the course of the day. Oh, I didn't do that very well. Ah, uh, you know. There I go again, I always mess up the meditation, you know, whatever it is, these subtle ways that we hold on. Uh, the Buddha spoke to this, you know, we learn so much from the subtle experiences, the subtle. You know, you learn as much about, you know, your job is to learn about holding on and to see uh, that you don't have to and understand that there's a potential for not holding on. And you can learn that with any kind of experience in terms of the ways that you're holding on. It doesn't have to be some big life profound form of dukkha. You know, I mean, there's this classical ones on retreat, right? You know, 
you know, you've got your favorite walking path, you know, and you get there and you're all ready for a beautiful period of blissful grace, walking in that beautiful Ajahn Lee style, you know, and somebody's in your path. That son of a gun, you know. <laughs> the anchor comes up, you know. <laughs> I mean, that's a, that's, that was always a classical one for me. I don't know, maybe it's the Dubinin school of classical aversions on retreat, you know. So, you know, and for years I would just like stew, you know, stew in my aversion to the, the people who were taking up my walking spot. You know, or another one at IMS that was always good was like somebody doing yoga in the walking room, you know. <laughs> you know it's like being a teacher and teaching retreats, you get to address all the, you know, all the ignominies that you've had to face over the years, you know, it's like, finally I can deal with these sons of guns, you know. You know. No, no yoga in the walking room. <laughs> so, I never really learned that skill of, oh, there's aversion, bring awareness to my aversion. You know, or, you know, doing my walking period and having, you know, Oh, the walking room, the person who was here every day doing yoga, they're not here today. Oh, this is going to be great. You know, I do my walking for 30, 30 minutes, you know, and I don't feel one breath, you know. Or in those days, it was the feet, you know. And it's like, ah, I screwed that one up. Ah, ah, you know. All right, there's bring awareness to that. Judgment, dissatisfaction, disappointment. Bring awareness, you know, these subtle things. I mean, you're just understanding about how you cause suffering. You can learn that with the real subtle things just as easily as you can with some you know, major aspect of aversion or desire in your life. So just bring that simple awareness. Oh, there's, that dis there's dissatisfaction. There's dissatisfaction. There's worry. There's judgment. You know, there's judging my practice. There's unhappiness with the way that it's going. Recognize that you're holding on. Recognize that you know your heart. Recognize that you're holding on to some mental form. Uh, feel it in the body if you can, and label it. Bring awareness to it. Oh, there's dissatisfaction. Worry. Anger, judgment, fear, whatever it is. Very simple, right? And just observe it. Just observe it. You know, just bring awareness to it. Shine the light of awareness on it with space, right? Like the Buddha says, like one person looking at another. You know, for a few seconds, for a few seconds, four or five seconds, and then go to the breath and see if you can have compassion. So as I talked about the other night, just bringing awareness, just bringing awareness is really the heart of the practice. Just bring awareness to these ways that you're holding on, just in that very simple way. Now there may be doubt about that, right? That can't really work. You may doubt the, the, the efficacy of that process. There's gotta be more to it, you know? I don't know, the second talk he gave on awareness, I don't really believe it. I'm gonna go back to my room and see what time Jeff, you know, I'm gonna I'm gonna you know look on my phone and go to access to insight, you know, and, and, and you know, read something on uh, you know, some 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 more you know obscure 
you know, aspect of the teaching that'll surely have a better answer than just bring awareness, you know. I mean, you know, Dubin, it's really gotten simplistic over the years, you know. You know, there tends to be a lot of doubt around that, you know. That's not having faith in the Buddha's awakening, you know, faith in the heart. So just bring awareness to what's there in terms of disappointment, worry, sadness, or doubt, or doubt, whatever it is, and let the heart understand it. Let the heart understand it. Your job, use your mind to shine the light of awareness on the experience, the mental object that you're holding onto, and let the heart understand it. Your job is to develop the concentration so that you're able to be aware of things when they're arising and that you can have some space and your job is to use the mind to shine the light of awareness. After that, it's pretty much out of your hands. Now it's the heart's job to understand because that's where understanding is. It's in the heart. So bring awareness to the dissatisfaction or the disappointment or the judgment Observe with space and let the heart understand. Let the heart understand. You know, one way to think about it is get out of the way. You know, now it's time for you to get out of the way. You know, which means not thinking about it, not analyzing it, not trying to fix it, not doing anything. You know, the doing goes into the concentration, really. You know, the doing in the practice goes into the concentration. That's where the effort goes. That's why Tanisara Bhikkhu says, do concentration. Let the heart take care of the rest. Observe the way the heart is blocked, the holding on to that mental quality, and let the heart understand. Let the heart understand. The Buddha said, if there's concentration, if there's space, the heart will understand and insight will occur. Insight will happen as easily as a strong man might knock over a jar filled with water. It's like that easy. If, if, you, you, know, if you get out of the way, you know, it's like you know, the heart is like that strong man. You know? It's like when it comes to insight, you know, we're like you know, 97-pound 97, 97 weaklings compared to the heart. So trust in the heart, trust in the heart. You know, we have to develop this trust in the heart. I mean, this is really this quality in many ways of internal assurance, you know, trust in what you already have inside of yourself. It's the same thing that I was talking about over the last few days in terms of finding an, <clears throat> an easeful abiding. You know? you know, ultimately you have to trust in your own ability in terms of your capacity in the heart to know what it is to be in tune. You know, it, you get into trouble in the meditation when you try to make it happen, right? when you try to make it happen. I'm going to make this breath really easeful. I'm going to make this ease in the body. You know, I mean, ultimately, that quality of ease, which is an element of your goodness, is something that uh, the heart will guide you to. You trust that uh, ability to be in tune. 
So, all right, it's our habit to rely on the mind, right? You know, that's our habit. And, you know, and, 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 and to try to figure things out. Right? That's what we've learned. That's our habit, to use the mind. So, we, we, so you know, that's what we've learned in our lives. That's what we were taught. Uh, use the mind to try to figure things out. You know, you know, your, your, you know, your 11th grade you know, physics teacher didn't say, use the heart to understand <laughs> vectors. You know? I don't know how I could remember 11th grade physics, but I just did, did right? Yeah. It's like we were trained to use the mind. But it only gets you so far in the Dharma. You know, if we try to use the mind to attempt to develop insight, we're not going to get very far. It's not the path. The mind can't free you from suffering. The mind can't let go. The mind can't bring the understanding about that's going to be uh, required in order for you to let go. The mind can't bring about liberating insight. Only the heart can. This knowing quality in the citta, this knowing quality, what Ajahn Chah called the one who knows. So, you know, the purpose of the mind, we could say, is to help you get to the heart. The purpose of the mind is to say, okay, be aware of your dissatisfaction, be aware of your desire, be aware of your aversion to the practice, and let the heart understand it. That's the purpose of the mind. You know, the mind gets you to that point. But after that, you have to trust in the heart to understand your innate wisdom, to understand. The mind exists in service of the heart. It's like a secondary organ, you know? It's a secondary organ. It, it exists in support of the heart. We tend to rely on the mind. And this is our habit. Again, it's what we've done all our lives. It's what we learned. You know, when I heard this kind of teaching early in my days in practicing the Dharma, I, you know, it, it was really hard for me to hear that. You know, I really objected to that because it was like, you don't understand, I'm a smart guy. I was a straight A student, you know? I have a college degree, you know? You know, and then I started to kind of think about it a little bit, you know, and, and started to kind of, you know, start to look at things a little bit more clearly. It's like, yeah, I was a smart guy, but where had that gotten me? I was one miserable son of a gun. I was unhappy. I didn't know how to live life skillfully. Yeah. I was suffering profoundly. Yeah. Maybe I was a smart guy in terms of book learning, you know, in physics, calculus, yeah. literature. Yeah. When it came to being happy, not so smart. Not so smart. Yeah. But, but the mind isn't going to get us to that point where we're able to know the kind of happiness you know, that we want in this life, true happiness. You know, it's, it's, it's hard because it's, it's very countercultural, right? It's very countercultural. You know, in our culture we think, well, you know, people who are really smart, you know, they know how to make a lot of money or, you know, build, build things and, you know, build computers and all these kinds of things, you know, and they're really smart people, you know? you know. 
I don't know how smart they are, really. You know, I don't know how smart they are. You know, I mean, by by a cultural definition, maybe they are. This is why we have so many problems in the world. There's less interest in the things of the heart. There's less interest in love and generosity and compassion. Now, part of the reason why we don't rely on the heart is we don't really understand the heart and what it is. Really, the only way to understand the heart is to get to know it. You know, is to get to know it. Our task as Dharma students is to get to know it. Retreat is a good time to get to know it. We can get to know it by bringing awareness to our experience in terms of the way we're holding on and let the heart understand that experience. Right? So get to know the heart. Get to know the heart. Let me try to bring awareness to this experience and let the heart understand it. We don't understand what the heart's potential is and how it can free us, how it can free us from holding on, how it can allow us and so that to develop the understanding so that we don't hold on. But the only way to understand that is to practice, you know, is to trust enough in the heart so that we can put it into practice and let our, the heart understand our experience and the way that we're holding on. So in the practice, we bring awareness to the way that we're holding on. Again, it can be the most simple things as we go through the course of the day and we begin to understand the heart's potential for understanding, for the understanding that allows us to let go. I mean, one way that we could understand perhaps what the heart is from a more culturally uh, uh, inclined, if you will, a perspective, uh, one way for understanding that which transcends the limits of the mind is creativity, right? You know, if we think of pure creativity, we often say it doesn't come from the mind, it comes from someplace else. Right? It comes from someplace else. Boy, I just painted that picture, or I just wrote that book, or right? Where did that come from? Where did that come from? Right? Artists will say. Uh, we could say it comes from the heart, right? Or if you think about a Dharma talk, you know, the best Dharma talks are the ones that I don't, you know, there's a few notes, but it's just, you know, sometimes after that, it's like, boy, I can't believe I said that. I gotta play the tape back to hear what I said, because I have no idea what I just said, but I think it was pretty good. You know, where did that come from? Where'd that come from? Yeah, that's what we're really striving, you know, and as Dharma teachers is to teach straight from the heart. Straight from the heart. I was like the way Nietzsche explained the transcendent, you know, this quality of the transcendent that, you know, the existentialists might call the transcendent, but it's, it's akin to the notion of the heart. And he actually used the images of creativity, in particular music, in particular the music of Wagner. But he said, he would say, uh, think about music, think about some kind of music that you like, and now describe it to me. Describe a Wagner symphony to me. It's like, you can't describe that. You know? How do you describe that? There's something there that's 
transcendent. They can't be described using words or intellectual understanding, right? There's something deeper. That's a, maybe a good way to understand what the heart is. There's the story of the Tibetan Rinpoche who came to the U.S. and uh, a famous Tibetan teacher. And they said, do you want to meet you know, famous spiritual leaders here? Do you want to meet famous political and community leaders? And he said, no, I want to meet the poets. I want to meet the poets. Now, it's hard to understand what the heart is because it transcends intellectual understanding. Transcends intellectual understanding. So much of the Buddhist teaching uh, asks that we bring understanding to our experience that transcends intellectual understanding. One of the ways that Tan Jeff explains this uh, or describes this is, Tanisar Bhikkhu describes this, is he says, you know, the Buddha doesn't you know, write everything out chapter and verse. You know? He gives you know, some basic instructions, but it's up to you to understand things in your heart. He doesn't want to tell you, you know, what the truth is. You have to understand that for yourself in your heart. You know, in many ways, you don't need to understand what the heart is. I mean, I'm pointing you towards some understanding. You just need to use it. You just need to use it. Sometimes, you know, the, the analogy of electricity. It's like, you don't, need to fig- you don't need to understand, even with my advanced knowledge of 11th grade physics, you know? <laughs> it's like, I don't really understand electricity. It doesn't really matter. I just got to turn the lights on, you know? You just need to use your innate capacity for knowing. So we don't trust the heart. We don't trust the heart. So we have to develop trust. And the way that you develop trust is try it. Try it. When holding on to, you know, see that you're holding on, or, you know, maybe again, be subtle. You're holding on to some form of uh, anger or aversion or desire or wanting the meditation to be better or impatience with your practice. You know, don't try to use the mind to let go. I see that, you know, I mean, that's what we do, you know. Uh, you know, and I, I mean, I see that historically in working with people. Uh, I see that on retreat and interviews. People, we, we try to use the mind to figure out our holding on and letting go. So try to shift away from that, right? Try to shift away from trying to figure out your holding on uh, intellectually or trying to let go uh, by using the mind. Start to trust in the heart. And the best way to do that, again, is just bring awareness to your experience. If there's enough space, you can just let the heart understand. Try it. You know, as the Thai Ajans would say, try it. What have you got to lose? You know, would you try it up until this point? How's that been working? Let's try this. Bring awareness. If there's dissatisfaction with the meditation, bring awareness to that. Bring awareness to the non-clinging that exists when there's just awareness. To what it's like when there's an object, dissatisfaction, worry, sadness, and awareness of the object. You know, if there's just 
anger, sadness, desire, worry, fear, and awareness, and there's just awareness, uh, you know, there's that little window, as I talked about the other night, when, there, when there's clinging is abandoned. See what that's like. Let the heart understand that. Let the heart understand that. Oh, there's, there's that dissatisfaction. Let me just bring awareness to that. You know, when you just bring, when there's just awareness, there's that window when there's, when clinging is abandoned, when you're not holding on. Let the heart see that and understand that. You know, we, 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 we may try to do that, but oftentimes we'll start to analyze. Oh, that's interesting. That's not clinging. Oh, that's, that's great. You know, that's fantastic. Got to try that tomorrow, you know? Or maybe there's, oh, I got it, this is fantastic. I, now I, you know, there's all the ways, you know, so you have to have that kind of discipline to just bring awareness and let the heart understand what it's like when there's just awareness of the object and you're not clinging. You know, it's like the Dharma talk, you know, just, just listening to the Dharma talk, not thinking about it. You know, that's why, that's why my teacher would often say, uh, you know, just, just stay with the breath when you're listening to the Dharma talk. Don't think about the Dharma talk. Let the truth go straight to the heart, right? It's not so easy to do because, you know, I'm talking and maybe you're thinking about what I'm talking about or trying to figure it out, you know. Just stay with the breath and let the truth go straight to the heart. Let the teaching go straight to the heart. Know that moment of non-clinging in the heart. And they're, they're moments, right? I mean, they're timeless moments, but it's essential to know non-clinging. It's essential to know non-clinging. And it's the same thing like with the music, right? You know, it's not an intellectual, you know, describe to me non-clinging. You know, it's like describe, it's like describe Wagner, you know, right? You, know, you can't describe it, you have to know it in the heart. So observe and know it, let the heart understand it. It's essential to know that. It's essential to know what it's like when there's an absence of clinging. Now it's subtle, right? And that's part of the problem because we're looking for something big. You know, we're looking for a symbol to crash, you know? We're looking for something dramatic, it's very subtle. It's very subtle. There has to be that real stillness, right? In the concentration. In the concentration. So in a moment of awareness, we know uh, what non-clinging is like, and we know that what we're holding on to doesn't have to be held on to. You know, the heart understands that in that moment of awareness that what we're holding on to, if it's that dissatisfaction or anger or worry or sadness or fear or whatever, we know in the heart that what we're holding on to doesn't have to be held on to. We know that we have the potential to not hold on. The mind doesn't really understand that, right? The mind's, the mind's understanding is very limited in terms of what our potential is. You know, the mind is like, I can't go to Italy. There's no way I could get on a plane and go to Rome. You know, the heart understands that what you're holding on to doesn't have to be held on to. 
that you have the potential not to hold on. So it's essential to know non-clinging, just to know it, you know, to know it and to understand it with the heart. You know, it's just like the heart can understand this moment right now. Truly, you know, if you don't think about it, and we're just here. Isn't that a lot different than trying to understand this moment by going, oh, there's Heather, Paul's over there, nobody's sitting on the floor, you know? It's like, what's that? You see the difference between that and this moment right now? That's it. And there's that famous Dharma talk. I hadn't thought about it in years. So the Buddha just came out, he held up the flower, he walked off the stage. That was it. Half the place got enlightened. You know? <laughs> Buddha was, could be more succinct. It takes me like an, almost an hour to kind of, what he could do like in a finger snap, right? So as we look at the breath, as we look at the breath, we understand we have a choice, right? If we just look at the breath and just pay attention, we start to see, oh, there's dis-ease and ease. I have a choice. As we look at the body, now this is the mango, right? You get the good spots and the bad spots, right? As you look at the body, you start to see, oh, I have a choice. There's dis-ease and ease, just like the mango. We learn to see what our choices are and to choose. We learn by bringing simple awareness to the way that we're holding on what our choices are. We learn to see that we have a choice. We can hold on or not hold on. We learn to see that we have choices and we learn to choose. Our happiness depends ultimately on what we choose. But you have a choice to hold on or not to hold on. But you have to see that you have a choice. You have to get to know that. You have to get to know that. The more you start to know that, it starts to go straight to the heart, and eventually you start to realize, you know what, I, I do have a choice. I do have a choice, but you don't really know that until you understand that in the heart. It's just me saying that, or the Buddha saying that, and you don't really know it. But this simple practice of beginning to bring awareness to your experience and letting the heart understand it, you begin to know that you have a choice, and that's everything. That's everything. You have a choice. You have a choice. And you be start to exercise that choice. And you start to say, well, you know what? Let me try not holding on. Let me choose something else. Let me go to the breath instead of holding on to this. Let me cultivate compassion or one of the sublime abidings. Now, ultimately, we begin to understand in the heart that not holding on is a better choice. And we begin to choose not holding on, to just let the objects be, to just let the objects be. I mean, it's hard to let the dissatisfaction and the worry and all those things be because, you know, we don't realize that we have a choice and we don't realize that there's a better choice. Not only that we have a choice, but there's a better choice. So we begin to choose to let the objects be and replace them with something better, with the breath, with ease, with stillness, with freedom. 
breath is a good choice, a good place for the mind. You start to see that. Isn't that a better choice than holding on to this dissatisfaction with my meditation practice? There's compassion, there's metta, there's joy. These are good places for the mind. So a couple of things I'll just end with. Uh, some ways that we can reflect a little bit, uh, uh, you know, maybe on our walks. You know, if you think about what's a reflection, right? A reflection is not thinking. It's not thinking about something. It's using the mind to maybe ask a question. Uh, It's using the mind to suggest an idea or an understanding that you might want the heart to develop, right? So you may have a thought or two, but ultimately when you're reflecting, you seek to understand things in the heart. So one thing you might want to reflect on is uh, the possibility of letting go. You know, you know, it's like I didn't just all of a sudden one day go to Berlin, you know, you know it's like, no, I, don't, I, can, I can do it. You know, it's like I started to, you know, maybe I could go to Europe. You know, maybe I could get a passport, you know? Well, let me go to London. I speak English there, all right? I, I, I think I can do that. I don't think I could go to a country where they don't speak English, but, you know, let me try that. Let me, you know, and then, you know what? Maybe I can go to France, you know? And then, you know, all of a sudden, you know, I'm living in, you know, in, on, you know, in Prince Lauerberg in Berlin. So begin to consider the possibility of letting go begin to reflect, to consider the possibility of not holding on. You know? So you have to, you, so one of the things you can start to reflect on that, maybe I can not hold on to some of these things that I've been holding on to all my life. These ways of dissatisfaction, you know, you know. I mean, people come in and talk to me all the time, you know, about, you know, different ways and, and mental patterns and habits of mind you know, and, you know, I've been doing this all my life, you know, which is great that you're seeing it. Now start to consider the possibility of letting it go, you know. Start to consider the possibility of letting it go. You can just begin by just reflecting, you know, can't, maybe I can let go of this. The mind is going to no, you can't, you know, but just start to consider that possibility and let that reflection drop into the heart. The heart begins to understand, you know, will begin to present that understanding to you that, yeah, you can but start to consider the possibility. Maybe I can not hold on. Maybe I can find freedom from this way of thinking or this form of emotion that's been strangling me all my life. Begin to to change the way that you think. So when you go for a walk, maybe just a simple reflection. Maybe I can let go of this aversion this way that I'm aversive, or this way that I engage in desire, or this way that I you know, immerse myself in dissatisfaction, and just drop that idea into the heart. We often talk about that sutta, uh, you know, the tears that fill all the oceans. The Buddha said, we've suffered so much in these lifetimes, we've shed enough tears to fill the four oceans. And then he ends that sutta by saying, seeing this, you know, maybe we might, might want to consider the possibility of letting go of our clinging and, and our dukkha. You know, so this is another good reflection. 
you know, As we bring our awareness to clinging, we see a lifetime of clinging, and we can begin to start to reflect, you know, uh, maybe I've suffered enough. You know, I've suffered, I've, I've held on to this stuff enough. Maybe, maybe it's enough. Maybe I've shed enough tears in this lifetime, in previous lifetimes. This is a skillful reflection. Haven't I suffered enough? Haven't I held on to this long enough? A few years ago, uh, I was in Berlin, and uh, I got an email from a friend of mine, uh, and she told me that Harry uh, had been rushed to the hospital. He'd been healthy, and all of a sudden, he got rushed to the hospital, and you know, he, he might die. And uh, you know, I was like, "Can I talk to him?" She said, "Well, right now he can't talk." I said, "You know, I, I'm going to call. Maybe I'll get on a plane." You know, the next day she emailed me early, you know, and it was like, he died. He died. You know, the, 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 the understanding of death, you know, the reflection on death supports our efforts to let go and to find freedom and to know a greater happiness. You know, when I think about letting go and consider the possibility of letting go, you know, one of the ways that I like to reflect is to reflect that, you know, there's not much time left to do it. You know, if I'm ever going to stop, you know, holding on to aversion and desire the way that I've held onto it all my life, if there's not much time, you know, left for me to, you know, to, to abandon letting go. You know, we're sort of like, well, maybe I'll get to the point of letting go when I get a little, I got a lot on my mind on, the, on my plate right now. You know, it's like, when? Time is short. You know, Harry was in good health and now, and then, uh, you know, all of a sudden he was gone. He was gone. Yeah. I better do it now while I have some time left. You know, how much longer am I going to wait? How much longer am I going to wait? Do I want to come to the end of my life and still be unhappy? Still be struggling with these things that I've been struggling with all my life? Still holding on to these different ways uh, that I've held on to these different emotions and thoughts and self-opinions and judgments and dissatisfactions, these different forms that I've been afflicted with in terms of aversion and desire? Do I want to come to the end of my life and still be unhappy? and still be holding on in the same way, right till the end, you know? Or, or maybe it's time to let go while I still have some time in this life. Do I want, at the end, to regret that I didn't? You know, that I didn't let go, that I didn't find freedom, that I didn't find a true happiness. The Buddha often ended his Dharma talks by saying, practice jhana. Don't be heedless, pay attention to what you're doing and the way that you're holding on. Practice jhana, don't be heedless, don't later fall into regret. This is our message to you. So these are some things we might want to reflect on when we consider our relationship to the things that we're holding on to. And we want to begin to understand and to learn and to see what it's like when we don't hold on and that we have a capacity not to hold on, to be free, 
that we don't have to hold on to the things that we've been holding on to. So let's just close our eyes just for a second.